0: The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Father, as Caleb was reading, um, it struck me that the word that was just read here is more important than anything I have to say about it. And so I recognize, acknowledge my own weakness And I need your help here this morning to clearly and accurately proclaim the truth of your word. And we need your work in our hearts, that your word would be the food of our souls. Your word would be the thing that changes hearts. So we now ask you to work by your grace through your word as we look at it together. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to look at three encounters in our text today. And these encounters center around the person of Jesus Christ and his calling on Saul of Tarsus, later known as Paul the Apostle. The first of these is Saul encountering Christ on the road to Damascus. That's the main plot of the story. So we'll spend the most time on that. The second is Ananias encountering Jesus and being given a mission. And the third is Ananias encountering Saul in obedience to the Lord. And together they all point toward the truth that the grace of God can change even the hardest heart. So that's, that's what I want you to grasp most today, that the grace of God can change even the hardest heart. But before we dive into the story, let's take a look at the main characters in this story, Saul, Jesus, and Ananias. And we'll just take them in the order of their appearance. So, who is this Saul guy? Who is he? The first mention of him is back in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, where Stephen is being stoned. So, that was just a few weeks ago. You may remember that. The Jewish leaders were laying down their coats at the feet of Saul. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, it tells us that Saul gave his approval to this execution of Stephen. From here, it seems that Saul takes on the role of enforcer, for the Jewish leaders in their effort to squash this little sect that had filled Jerusalem with its teaching. So he's going around Jerusalem raiding homes and arresting believers and dragging off both men and women to prison, it says in chapter 8, verse 3. Now, what was it about these Jesus followers that so enraged Saul? Well, he tells us a little about that over In uh, chapter 22, verses 3 to 5, uh, so chapter 22, chapter 26, both contain Saul telling again, giving his testimony, if you will, and repeating this story. So in chapter 22, Saul says that he was a devout Jew, born in Tarsus, but raised among the rabbis in Jerusalem. His chief mentor was Gamaliel, who we know from chapter 5, verses 33 to 39, was a Pharisee and an honored teacher of the law. Saul was zealous for God. I mean, really zealous. He not only upheld all the traditions down to every last jot and tittle of the law, but he wanted to stamp out any perceived threat to those traditions. So, we could say that Saul's heart was immovably committed to exterminating Jesus and his little sect of heretics. Okay, the next person in the story we meet is Jesus. Now, if you're in this room and you're a Christian, you know who this is. I hope, right? King of kings, Lord of lords, the word made flesh, the great I am, the Messiah. The high priest of God's kingdom, the Son of God and God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the crucified and risen Savior of the world, the head of the church. Any other titles we can apply to him? He's the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way, no other truth, and no life outside of him. He is the soon coming one who will destroy all who do not follow him and bring into being a new heaven and a new earth for all his sheep who have put their trust in him. Now we could go on and on, but you get the idea here. So does anyone really think that this Jesus can be resisted? Once he's set his sights on bringing you into his fold, can anyone really say no? Is there any heart so hard and immovable that Jesus can't overcome it? Well, if anyone can, it's Saul. And we'll see what happens in this epic battle of wills in just a couple of moments. But first, let's look at the third person here, Ananias. Now, we have no background on this Ananias. He's apparently a Jewish convert to Christianity. Again, looking at Saul's testimony that he's giving before the crowd in Jerusalem over in chapter 22, Saul tells us that Ananias was a devout man according to the law and had a good reputation among the Jews in Damascus. He is simply said to be a disciple. I love the simplicity. He's just a disciple. That's all we really know about him from Scripture. No fancy title, no position. He's not an elder in a church that we know of. He's just a disciple. And as we'll see, he demonstrates why this is such an apt description of him. You see, a disciple is simply a follower. Follower. Someone who uh, follows the teachings and example of his mentor. And in this case, the mentor is Jesus. So beyond this, we really just don't know anything about Ananias. Okay, so those are the three main characters in the story. Now let's take a look at the three encounters that happen in this passage. We've met the participants. Let's see what happens when they encounter each other and see God's grace at work in breaking down human resistance. So first, the encounter between Saul and Jesus. This is the central theme of this story. And this is the encounter that clearly demonstrates God's power to change hearts. So I've given the title to this message, Irresistible Grace Meets Immovable Heart. And that's what we see here. This is a battle as the grace of the Lord Jesus meets Saul's hardened heart. It's like a heavyweight bout. So the bell rings for round one, and this is what we see. We see Saul coming down the road to Damascus, and he's on his way to, uh, to Damascus to go into the synagogues and arrest any followers of the way. The way. That's an interesting term. This is an early term applied to the followers of Jesus. Jesus. It's not clear why they were called the way, but maybe it was based on the fact that Jesus called himself the way, the truth, and the life. So that maybe that's where the term came from. But anyway, Saul is in this group of men. He's got this group of men with him. So we might call them the muscle, right? So their job their job is to root out any followers of Jesus from these synagogues, bind them, and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. That's what they're on their way to do. And we all know how those trials in Jerusalem go, don't we? So Jesus went through a trial in Jerusalem and got hung on a cross. And we just saw Stephen a couple chapters ago go through a trial in Jerusalem, and he got stoned to death. So it didn't turn out too well for either one of them. And it's likely that to be found and arrested by Saul was a death sentence. In fact, we'll see later in verses 13 and 14 that Saul's reputation preceded him in Damascus. So his very name seems to strike terror into the hearts of Jesus' followers. The picture I get in my mind is like the Nazi SS during World War II. So if you were a German citizen and the SS came knocking at your door, it didn't matter whether you were guilty or innocent of what they might accuse you of. You were scared because they didn't need any proof of anything. So Saul is hunting down Christians wherever they may hide. But as he's traveling along this road, his heart hard, his mind intent on destroying this faith, he runs smack into Jesus. And talk about an encounter. This is like a knockout punch thrown seconds after the opening bell. Bam! The light from heaven flashes around this traveling party of persecutors, and instantly Saul falls to the ground. Now, was he knocked down by the brightness of the light? Or was it just an instinctive reaction to realizing that you're suddenly in the presence of omnipotence? I don't know which it was. Maybe it's some of both. But one thing is certain. Saul had an agenda on this trip. And Jesus had a different agenda. And when Jesus shows up, everybody gets on his agenda. No matter how hard their hearts are. I like John Piper. He preached on this text nearly 30 years ago, and just going to take a quote from his message. He puts it like this Notice that the voice that speaks to Paul from heaven does not ask for Paul's free decision to believe in Jesus, it tells him exactly what he is to do. Jesus is seen here as totally authoritative. He means to have Paul in his service, and there's no question but that he will succeed. So this voice from heaven asks a devastating question. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now when Paul retells the story before King Agrippa over in chapter 26, he says there was an added phrase at the end of this, and I really like this. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, we don't really understand what goads are in our culture today, but they were just sharp sticks that you would use to poke and prod an animal in the direction that you wanted him to go. And if the animal kicked back against that goad, it only would increase the duration and intensity of the pain. So it would instinctively move away from that pain. And I wonder if this indicates to us that the Lord had been poking and prodding Saul even as he's so committed to exterminating this Jesus cult, deep in his heart, he's being drawn. And the intensity of his resistance, it's like the more he's drawn, the more he's poked and prodded, the more he kicks back and resists. It's an attempt to suppress the truth that he knew he had to face. Well, on this day, on this road to Damascus, he faces it, literally. The question Jesus asked is a penetrating one. Why are you persecuting me? That's strange. Jesus wasn't even physically present. Well, Jesus identifies so intimately with his church, so closely that any kind of suffering inflicted upon his people is the same as if he were experiencing it himself. I think this is an important thing for us to realize as we prepare in our culture... For increased persecution, decreased religious liberty, where it's going to be harder and harder to be a Christian, we can take heart that it's not so much persecution of us that's going on here. The world doesn't necessarily hate us, they hate Jesus. It's really the world that they want that wants to suppress Jesus. But as his followers, we get caught up in that. And when the persecution touches us, it's being done to Jesus as well. So while Jesus may not be physically present with you in any kind of suffering you're going through, you can know that he feels it. He knows it. And he will one day deal with it. Okay, so the brightness of this light and the convicting power of this question instantly destroys any resistance in Saul's heart. The only words that Saul can muster in response is a trembling, Who are you, Lord? Now, have you ever thought that Saul answers his own question here, doesn't he? It is the Lord, right? Now, I don't think Saul would have had Jesus in mind because he's a Jew and he would not have equated Jesus with God. But he knows God is speaking. But then in the very next instant, the voice responds and identifies himself. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And now in this one moment comes a terrifying realization for Saul that the Jesus he's been been resisting is the God of all creation. He's been resisting the very Messiah that was promised. So He's hopeless here. He has no defense. He has no excuse. He knew the law. He knew the promises. He'd heard Stephen's convicting sermon. And now he realizes that he's the stiff-necked, rebellious one that Stephen talked about right at the end of that sermon. He's the one who's uncircumcised in heart and ears. He's the one who's always resisting the Holy Spirit. He's just like his fathers who persecuted the prophets. So in one second of the blinding light of Christ's holiness and glory, even the hardest heart must yield. I think there's an irony in this bright light. It's so bright that it temporarily takes away Saul's physical sight, but simultaneously Saul's heart is illuminated by the truth of the gospel, and he sees like he's never seen before. Though he can't see with his physical eyes, the eyes of his heart see Jesus for who he really is. And once you see that, there's simply no force, human, natural, or demonic, that can withstand the power of Almighty God. So despite the fact that the human heart is sinful and fallen by nature, that's our natural state, and despite the fact that we continually suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and despite the fact that we live in the atmosphere of a fallen world that makes God small, very small, and us big, when we encounter Jesus, our hearts must give way. He doesn't force his grace upon us. Rather, he makes himself Listen, he makes himself look so irresistibly good and desirable that we freely give up the fight and surrender in repentance and faith. So that's the first encounter. Let's look at the second one. Ananias encounters Jesus. This is a different experience than Saul's, and it seems to happen while Saul is on his three-day fasting and prayer retreat in Damascus. So Ananias is off in a different part of the city, and Jesus appears to him in a vision. And he calls his name, and Ananias' answer to the Lord's call is quite different than Saul's. It's a humble response of a servant to his master when he's called. He says, Here I am, Lord. This is the same kind of response that Samuel, when he was a little boy, gave to the Lord. This is the same kind of response that Isaiah gave when um, the Lord called him to His ministry, "Here I am, Lord." Now both Ananias and Saul refer to the one speaking as Lord. But Ananias's answer seems much more like one who is familiar with his master's voice. And although he may have never had a vision like this before, and he'd never audibly heard a voice from heaven before, he still seems to be acquainted with the one who's speaking. He has a relationship with this Lord. Ananias knows the Lord personally. Now, once Ananias has presented himself to listen, the Lord tells him to go to a specific street and to a specific house owned by a specific guy named Judas and to speak to a specific guy staying in that house from Tarsus, Saul by name. And why? Well, the Lord tells Ananias because Saul is praying. And in his prayers, he's seen a vision of a man named Ananias come to him and pray for him to receive his sight. So do you see how the Lord is orchestrating all of this together by his sovereign purposes? Jesus is totally in charge here. But now I want you to put yourself in Ananias' sandals for a minute. He's a faithful disciple. He really wants to obey. But really, Lord? Saul, like I said a moment ago, Saul's reputation has preceded him because Ananias instantly knows who the Lord is talking about. Jesus has just asked him to go and pray for healing of a man who's intent on beating, imprisoning and, if necessary, killing Christians. So, even the heart in the heart of this godly man, there's some resistance. This doesn't sound like a wise course of action. So Ananias just gives a little pushback here. Think about that. He's giving pushback to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. It's like he's saying, Lord, this guy likes to kill Christians. I heard about Stephen. I heard what he was doing in Jerusalem. And he's got the authority to do the same thing here. He wants to stamp out the way. And you want me to go and pray for him? Doesn't sound like a good idea. Now, the Lord is very gentle with Ananias here. He knows he's asking him to do a hard and uncomfortable thing, and he will need the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. In the flesh, this command makes absolutely no sense. So Jesus gives him two reasons why he should go. The first one is that Saul is a chosen instrument of the Lord's to carry his name before the Gentiles, the rulers, and the people of Israel. Gentiles, rulers, people of Israel. That just about covers everybody in the Roman Empire. Now, no way Ananias could have foreseen that. He's going to do what, Lord? That persecutor of the church is going to become a preacher who would proclaim Jesus to the entire empire? Couldn't see that one coming. The second reason is that the Lord is going to show Saul how much he must suffer for his name's sake. So the persecutor will become the persecuted, the one who caused so much suffering for God's people, will turn around and be persecuted and suffer for his name's sake. But look, this is not the Lord doing some kind of vengeance thing on Saul. This is not him getting even for everything Saul's done. It's a ministry specifically chosen by the Lord for Saul. Wow, that's an an amazing thing. We all seem to romanticize the Apostle Paul. I mean, I tend to do that think he's this great apostle great successful ministry the fact is that he was called to a ministry that saw lots of people saved yes it saw entire uh, cities transformed for the in the name of Jesus it saw miracles done it saw churches planted but it also brought him much suffering and hardship sometimes he was despairing even to the point of death he was beaten many times. Frankly, I, I, uh, I suspect a few of us would sign up for Paul's ministry if we knew ahead of time what he was going to go through. Listen, when God calls us to ministry, it may not always look like what we think a successful ministry should look like. Just as often, successful ministry looks like suffering for the sake of Jesus. All right, so there's this moment of resistance in Ananias, and the Lord's response is not a blinding light that knocks him down, but a gentle explanation that gives him solid reasons to obey. Ananias has just given a bit of pushback to the Lord, and the gentle shepherd has responded with grace to remove any resistance from the heart of his child. All right, this brings us to the final encounter of the passage. Ananias. comes and meets Saul. So Ananias obeys. I love the simplicity of the Bible here. It's lack of drama. Verse 16 simply says, So Ananias departed and entered the house. He just did what he was told. Now note that Ananias, in verse 17, refers to Saul as brother. So by his encounter with Jesus, Ananias has been persuaded that this former persecutor of the church, is now his brother in Christ. That's a miracle. That's the power of the gospel. Those who were once enemies now become brothers and sisters in Christ. So maybe before we cancel our cultural enemies, we should pray for them. I mean, that's what Jesus said to do, right? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Are we doing that? So here we see the arrogant, proud, law-keeping Pharisee, humbled and broken and blind and ashamed, and a common, ordinary Christian visits them. This is just the type of person that Saul had been commissioned to imprison. But the Lord has turned the tables completely, and now Ananias, really a nobody from all we know about him, Is pronouncing healing, filling of the Spirit, and then he's baptizing this rebel persecutor. So Ananias disappears from the pages of Scripture after this. He only gets this one brief mention in the history of the church. But think about the role this ordinary Christian played in God's plan. So if you're an ordinary Christian, don't be discouraged. You can play a tremendous role in God's plan and not even know it. All right. So, what difference does this story that happened 2,000 years ago make for us today? Let's talk about some applications of what we see in this story. And I want to share three things. We could talk about a lot of things, but I'll talk about three specific things. I'll sum them up in four words. So, here's the words, okay? Number one, Conversion. Number two, irresistible grace. And number three, obey. So conversion, irresistible grace, and obey. Here we go. First, conversion. Christianity is a converting faith. A converting faith. No one is born a Christian. Rather, you must be born again. So kids, listen. If your parents are Christians, that's great. But that doesn't mean you're right with God just because your parents are trusting in Jesus. You have to trust in Him for yourself. You have to own that faith yourself. Easter Sunday, we saw several young people baptized. That's, that's children of Christian parents owning their faith for themselves. You don't get saved because your fa- parents are saved. All of us start out life as sinners, and if nothing changes, we'll experience the wrath of God in hell for all eternity. You can be super religious like Saul, trying to obey God's commands and please God by your own efforts, and you'll be found at the end to be resisting Jesus. Or you may be trapped in a web of sin and self-destruction, and in so deep you think you can't get out. Or maybe, maybe this is the most dangerous category of person of all. You may be coasting along in your life, minding your own business, perfectly satisfied with where you are, not even interested in God or Jesus or anything to do with Christianity. That was me. That was me before I got, the Lord got a hold of me. I just didn't care. I wasn't interested at all. Nothing was poking or prodding me toward him. Or maybe you're a nun. You know, N-O-N-E, the nuns. Um, the people with no faith in anything at all, they just don't believe anything. Or maybe you're believing that Christianity is a dangerous cult that should be avoided. That's kind of a popular view nowadays. You know just enough about it to be turned away from it. But listen, whatever state your heart is in, you've got to understand that Jesus calls you to turn from all those false assumptions those phony excuses and the sin that keeps you from eternal joy and be converted. Yes, converted. Now the world tells us today that trying to convert others away from whatever belief system they're into or no belief system at all and get them to believe in Jesus is actually wrong. (laughs) It's actually wrong. It's especially wrong to go into another culture and try to change their religion. Well, actually, first, let me say that our job is not to convert anybody. We can't convert anybody. The converting power is God. God does the converting. And as we've seen, when he acts, no human resistance can hold up. So we ought not to apologize for wanting to see people turn radically around and become followers of the way. <laughs> because Jesus is the only way. It's the only way to know God. So we're not going to make any apology. For being a converting faith, Saul is an example of one such conversion. But listen, I don't want you to get the idea that the circumstances surrounding Saul's conversion are what is our example, because not many of us are going to experience a blinding light or a voice of Jesus Himself. It's the heart change that we all need. So we don't all get the outward circumstances of Saul's experience, but the heart change must happen to all of us. And it has to happen. It may happen when you're five or 105. It may happen suddenly like it did to Saul, or it may happen over the course of time, or in my case, it happened both ways. It was kind of a three-year gradually rising interest and then finally kind of a crisis point where the Lord told me it was time to fish or cut bait. So the circumstances and reactions will all be different in every case, but the heart change is the same. The heart change is the same. Does that happen to you, that heart change? All right, second application point, irresistible grace. No one is beyond the irresistible grace of God. This story should encourage us. No heart is too hard for God to soften. No mind is too deceived for God to break through. Maybe you're the one resisting the calling of God today. Maybe you know somebody who is. There's no power that can ultimately resist the grace of God. Now maybe you laugh at that and say, that's not true. There are millions, even billions of people in the world who are successfully resisting every single day, and I'm one of them. Well, here's, here's what we mean when we talk about God's irresistible grace. We don't mean that you can't resist it for a time. We all resist it for a time. But if God has set his saving love on you, there will come a time in your life when he will break through every shred of resistance. He will break through every wall you set up. And you will come to him. You will. You will come freely, but you will come. Now, those of us who experienced this drawing, this irresistible grace, aren't you glad that's true? I am. I'm glad the Lord finally broke down my resistance and granted saving faith to me because if it depended on me, listen, if it depends on us, we'll never come. We'll resist for the rest of our lives. No one will be saved. God has to do a miracle for this to happen, just like he did with Saul. Not only that, as believers, this truth gives us hope when we pray for other people, pray for family members and coworkers whose hearts seem so hard. But listen, no matter how hard-hearted they may seem and no matter how long they've put up resistance, no matter how deep they've sunk in sin, God's grace can still reach them. Amen? Amen. So I wonder, uh, there's a verse that Paul wrote later over Second 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and I wonder if he had his own conversion in mind, the light on the road to Damascus when he wrote these words. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Whatever outward circumstances happen everyone needs to experience that, and no heart is so far that God cannot reach it. All right, so conversion, irresistible grace, third, obey. You know, often when you hear messages on this passage, we're talking about Saul and his encounter with Jesus the whole time, but I want to just draw something out of Ananias' story here. God doesn't need mighty people to do his work, just obedient ones. God does not need mighty people to do his work, just obedient ones. He may call us to do hard things that don't make sense to us. But how do we know that obedience in that little thing might be what changes someone's life forever or even changes the course of history? Don't assume that you're just a nobody that God can't or doesn't use. Years later, in a letter to the church in Corinth, again quoting 1 Corinthians now, Paul writes writes this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose, listen to the things God chooses here. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God hates our boasting. God hates our boasting. So he deliberately chooses nobodies. So praise the Lord, you're a nobody because you're chosen by God. Amen? And we may never know, excuse me, never know what encounters we'll have in this life with other people that eternity will reveal to be the dramatic difference makers. Because most of us are just ordinary, average Christians. But understand this, every encounter you have Every encounter you have with another person is ordained by God. The sovereign God has ordained that encounter, and it has potential for a life-changing purpose. So do you think that way when you're at work? Do you think that way when you're in the grocery store? Do you think that way when you're working out at the gym, when you're talking to a neighbor? Have you ever felt the prompting to go and speak to someone? Maybe it's not a vision like Ananias had, but you're probably not being called to go to a Saul either. Just a neighbor. Just a neighbor. Will we obey? In a sense, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, again, every encounter is a divinely appointed encounter. No matter how casual it may seem. So the trembling, hesitant obedience of Ananias precipitated, uh, listen to what it did, (laughs) this trembling, hesitant obedience of this little nobody, Ananias, precipitated a chain of events that changed the world. It spread the gospel far and wide. It planted churches. It saved sinners. It did miracles. And it gave us most of the New Testament. That's all. That's all. (laughs) It It was a hard thing the Lord asked him to do. But the Lord broke down any resistance and history shows us the result of this simple act of obedience of this one ordinary Christian. So how do you know, brothers and sisters, that your next encounter with someone won't be the one that makes an eternal difference? Let's pray. Father, I don't know the calling you are laying on people's hearts here. Some, I'm hoping, praying, will have the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shine in their hearts, even right now, maybe for the very first time. And for others of us, we've had loved ones who have been resisting you for so long, and we've maybe given up praying. We don't think it's ever going to happen. We think they're beyond your reach, but they're not. And maybe we've thought that we're just plain old ordinary people and we're not going to be used for anything great. We're going to be like this Ananias who appears and disappears from the pages of Scripture in about a paragraph and a half. But look what happened when he just obeyed. So I thank you, Father, that you've changed the hearts of most of the people in this room. We've been converted. We love you. And that's your work. We praise you for that. We thank you that your grace is irresistible so that all whom you are calling to yourself will come and give us hearts that are eager and ready to obey, even when it seems hard and it doesn't make sense. ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.